here with you this evening and uh, excited to uh, finish up our, uh, our seventh I Am Statement of Jesus. And uh, like I said, next week, Pastor will begin uh, a brand new series on the joy that Jesus brings. And uh, you're going you're gonna to want to make sure that you're here for that. Um, want to uh, uh, call your attention to John chapter 15 tonight. This is where we're going to wrap things up. I want to um, just remind us all that as we get into this portion of John chapter 15, that Jesus is actually um, not in kind of a separated, isolated moment in this text, but everything that we've been reading for the past couple of weeks from John chapter 13 all the way through John 16, uh, this is a continual moment. This is um, perhaps one entire day, definitely one entire evening, where a lot of well-known events in Jesus's life are happening, and if we're not careful, we can sometimes assume that these different events are happening at different moments in Jesus's life and all this kind of stuff. But the reality is they're all, most of these events are happening in the same night. It's the last night of Jesus's life. This is the night where Jesus comes and he is going to institute the Lord's Supper. Just before that, he goes and he washes the feet of the disciples. Uh, in this moment, uh, Jesus is going to remind Peter that Peter's going to deny him three times. Uh, it's a very, um, it's, it's a sacred moment in the upper room, but it's also some of the last hours that Jesus is going to live on this planet as a human being. And so there are a lot of emotions going on. Uh, there's a lot of fear, a lot of confusion, all these kind of things. And Jesus... In this moment, Jesus is not only trying to explain to his disciples what is about to transpire, but he's also trying to encourage their hearts, but he's also trying to prepare them for what's next. He's trying to tell them you need to walk in this way, you need to do these things in order to fulfill your destiny as my disciples. And so tonight we're going to pick up in John chapter 15. Uh, we are going to begin in verse 1 and we're going to go all the way through verse 17. Um, these are the words of Jesus, our Lord. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends 
if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And this is my command, that you love one another. The Father, we thank you for the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of his final words as a human on this planet and some of the most powerful words. My prayer tonight, Lord, is that as we look into your word, that it would indeed be like a mirror that we would see the reflection that you want us to see. I pray, Lord, that you will teach us all that we are called to be. And my prayer tonight is always, Lord, that you will just cause the spirit of the Lord, who's not only our comforter and our helper, but you are our teacher. And I pray that you will teach your people things that are far beyond my capacity to teach them. But in a moment, you will quicken their hearts and speak to them. Speak to us all, Lord. And we ask you to bless your word and the proclamation of it in Christ's name. Amen, amen, and amen. Powerful, powerful words from Jesus. I remember a a few years ago when I was a youth pastor, um, there was a situation that happened with uh, four high school girls. Anytime you get more than one high school girl together, (laughs) sometimes things happen that are not favorable. And uh, I remember uh, this one time, uh, we had this situation with these four girls, and uh, if I remember right, none of them were related or anything like that, and they were all super close friends. Something happened outside of the church. It had nothing to do with the church, but um, they ultimately ended up not treating each other very well. It did not go well. They didn't handle each other well. They didn't honor each other as they were working through this issue. And um, it kind of bled over from their relationship into their parents' relationship. Their parents called me. It bled over to me. And Pastor Corey, they're, you know, they're like, can you just kind of get involved and kind of settle this? And I was like, sure, I'll be glad to help if I can. But I just want to remind you, these are four teenage girls. Uh, there may be no resolution ever. Um, and uh, so the girls came in and uh, we, we sat and we talked. And, and the bottom line is that there were, there were at least two sides. There, there were really like three sides to that entire story. And I didn't really know what to believe. I didn't know who was telling the story. I didn't, know, I didn't know all the details. I really didn't know. And so the way I tried to address the conversation was to go in and talk to them in such a way where I, I just wanted to talk to them about how we are called by Scripture to honor one another. Not so much about the nitty, you know, details of the situation that was going on, but more so to say, but when situations like this happen, this is how we handle one another. And uh, so at the end of the conversation, I I felt like it went really, really well. And at the end of the conversation, I I sat there and I said, hey, listen, I I don't know everything that's going on, okay? But if anything that I just said applies to you, let the Spirit of God do his work. Just let God do his work if any of this applies to you. Conversation ends, the girls walk out, and two of the girls came back to me later. I can't remember if they came back together or or separately. I want to say it was separately. And they came in my office, and they looked at me and said, Pastor Corey, I just want to say thank you so much 
for having that conversation with us because Susie really needed to hear that. <laughs> Another girl, Mary Beth, really needed to hear that. And I sat there befuddled because in my mind, I'm thinking, you all needed to hear that. And as I thought about that when I was reading through John 15, this is what I really thought. This is not one of those scriptures that any Christian who is maturing in their faith ever looks at and says, oh, Justin really needs to hear that. There, there, it's just not because I'll tell you, every time that I can recollect in my Christian life, every single time that I have read through John 15, there's a quickening in my soul. And every time I walk away from John 15, I think to myself, man, I really needed to hear that. You know what I'm saying? And so tonight, um, I don't want to, um, I, you know, we're not going to approach this in a way that, that's condemning or anything like this. But I want you to just, on this last night that we're together for this series, just really open your heart. Allow the, the Spirit of God to speak in these moments that God may do his work, that we may have understanding, but that God may do his work for his glory and for our good. And so... Jesus goes through this uh, kind of an allegory. He starts using metaphors uh, about a vine dresser and a vine and branches and fruit and all these different type of things. And tonight we'll just kind of walk through these and, and try to understand them a little bit better. But the first thing that Jesus does is he speaks of himself as the true vine. Now, we're not really sure where this whole conversation geographically takes place. We're not really sure. A lot of people believe that Jesus is still in the upper room when this takes place. There are a lot of people that do not believe it was in the upper room, that it was somewhere else in the city. Um, there are some that say, well, Jesus, when he was doing this, Jesus was such a word picture guy that he was talking about the true vine. He was in the upper room and he had the cup that they had just had for supper and instituted the Lord's Supper. And he was, he was you know, insinuating that, that the vine made the cup and he was kind of using that on word play. Other people believe that Jesus was, uh, had already left the upper room, that he was on his way to Gethsemane for his final uh, uh, long time with the Lord. And uh, he was kind of walking along in the streets of Jerusalem, talking to his disciples. That's the way that rabbis oftentimes would, would teach. It wasn't like there would be times where there would be corporate gatherings where rabbis would teach. But with their most intimate disciples, they would oftentimes just walk together along the side of the road and they would teach. We see Jesus do this a lot. We see him do it even after the resurrection when he's walking the road to Emmaus and, and the disciples said, our hearts burn within us when, when he spoke. Some people think that Jesus is just kind of walking along and as he's walking along that he sees the temple of Jerusalem kind of off in the distance and he begins talking about this. The reason that some people think that that may be the scenario is because um, Way back in, in David's day, King David was um, uh, ruler over Israel. Uh, we read in scripture that, that David wanted to erect a temple for the Lord. But the Lord spoke to David. He said, no, you're, you're, you're a man of war. Your hands are unclean. You can't do it. But because you love me so, I'll allow your son Solomon to do it. And Solomon used all of his resources. He emptied the treasury and they built this glorious temple for the Lord. It's called Solomon's temple. And then just a little while later, when, when Babylon invaded Israel, that temple was utterly destroyed. Uh, about a generation later after the temple was destroyed, there was a man named Zerubbabel who came in, um, the, the king of Persia allowed him to come back to Israel. And he started to 
rebuild Solomon's temple. We call it the second temple. And basically, he began to build this temple, but it wasn't, now obviously, they did not have the same resources that Solomon had. And so the temple wasn't as large. It definitely wasn't as glamorous. It wasn't like laden with golden unicorns like Solomon's temple was, but it was, they were doing the best that they can to honor the Lord with what they had. And so over the next several hundred years after Zerubbabel had, had established the temple as best he could, over the next few hundred years, different rulers that would come into Jerusalem, they would kind of make additions or they would add on to the temple as it existed. Herod, during Jesus' day or just before Jesus was born, he, he did all kinds of renovations to the temple. He expanded it. He made it bigger than it was originally and all these kind of things. But what we understand about Herod's temple is that over one of the entrances, he had a grapevine that went up one side over the other side and down the other. Now it was enormous. It wasn't this big. It was, it was a temple entrance. It was huge. And some people think that Jesus from the distance motioned to his disciples. And what he was saying is he was contrasting himself to Herod. And he was saying, no, 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 that, he may think he's the vine, but I'm the true vine, right? And that may be the case. We, we just really don't know. I'll tell you what I believe. I think that when Jesus is uh, walking, that he is literally seeing vineyards or grapefruit vines that are literally along the side of the road. If you've ever been to Israel, you know that you can just be walking down the road and you can see these things. And they're not the same type of, you know, uh, grape vines that we have here. You know, when I was growing up, my dad had a, a scuppernong uh, vine thing. And it was like, you know, the vine was like this big, right? In Israel, you can't deny what a grapevine is because they're like this big. They're enormous, and they'll, they'll just run for yards and yards and yards. They're, they're enormous. I think that Jesus may have been walking alone and, and just seeing a, a, a vine and talking about how he is the true vine. Now, I will say this. I do think that Jesus was not just saying, I'm the true vine for the sake of saying I'm the true vine. For the fact that Jesus said, I am the true vine, we can assume that that means there's a false vine. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, there is a people group that, is, that, that the Lord himself through the prophets calls the vine of God, and it's the people of Israel. And I think what Jesus is saying in this moment, he's saying, listen, all of your life you've been taught that Israel is the vine of God, but I'm here to tell you that I am the true vine for this reason. Israel never lived up to her ultimate purpose. Her purpose was to be a light to the nations. Her people was to be a reflection of who God is. She was to be a fruitful people. But on the contrary, Israel was not fruitful. She did not, well, she bore fruit, but it wasn't good fruit. It was bad fruit, right? She bore sin and um, religious oppression. She bore all kind of things, idolatry, that the Lord had never intended. And I think in this moment, what Jesus is doing is he's stepping up to the plate and he's saying, listen, I know what Israel has done in the past. And she has tried to create this religious system that would make her right with God as the vine of God. But I have come to fulfill what Israel could never do for herself. And through his suffering, through his sacrifice, through the purity of his life, and ultimately through his resurrection, not only would he fulfill what Israel never could do, but Jesus would now become the vine 
that doesn't just reach the people of Israel. He doesn't just reach the Jews, but listen to the the words that Paul uses, that Jesus would be the one to graft others in to himself. They would be grafted into the vine. So Jesus is saying, listen, I know you've heard about this vine. I know that you think you're this vine, but I am the true vine. I've come to fulfill that which you could not fulfill. Now, Jesus goes on and he starts talking about these branches. Now, I know sometimes when we read certain portions of scripture like this, anytime that we see the word fire or burn or burnt, we automatically think that scripture is talking about hell, right? And I understand that there are some people that would read this portion of scripture and because the Lord uses the words that I will cut them off, they will wither, and then they will be thrown into the fire. There are some that believe that Jesus is talking about the eternal destiny of people. He's saying, look, if you bear fruit, you're saved. And if you don't bear fruit, you're going to hell, right? And there are some people that, that genuinely believe that. The trouble that I have with that interpretation is simply this. If we say that the only people who are going to heaven are people who bear fruit, we have just made Christianity a religion of works, right? It's no longer by faith that we're saved. Now it's if we are working to bear fruit that we are saved. It's not consistent with the whole of scripture. um, and, And frankly, it's not even consistent in this moment. I do not think that Jesus is talking about the eternal destination of people. I think he's simply talking about works. Jesus emphatically, I would say that Jesus is definitely saying that, listen, if you're a Christian, you should be bearing fruit. And if you're not bearing fruit, I don't think that Jesus is coming and saying, listen, if you're not bearing fruit, sorry, man, you should have done better. It's hell for you. You know, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. As a matter of fact, in the text, this is what he says. He says, if there is any branch within me that does not bear fruit. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, if they are already a part of me and they're not bearing fruit, being a part of him indicates salvation. So Jesus is not talking about uh, eternal works leading to salvation. He's talking about um, the, the fruit of God and the reward of God. This is what I, what I truly think. I think that Jesus is saying that Christians should bear fruit, no question asked. But if you don't bear fruit, you are just like the person that Jesus talks about earlier who did certain works, but their works, they did them with wrong motives or for the wrong reasons, and their works, their reward was burnt up like hay and stubble. In other words, they didn't inherit an eternal reward. They got to go to heaven, but when they got to heaven, there was no reward for them because their works weren't done in the right way. So I think that is literally what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the branches. Now, when he talks about bearing fruit, it's important to to see where Jesus is talking about the three different layers of, of fruit, right? If you notice in the text, He says that on one level, you have fruit, people who bear fruit. On another level, you have people that bear more fruit. On another level, you have people who bear much fruit, right? And what Jesus is is saying here is he's saying we need not be a people that get comfortable with just bearing fruit, right? It's kind of like, it's kind of like, um, I heard somebody say one time, it's kind of like at McDonald's. 
you can go to McDonald's and you can get the regular number six, right? Or you can get the number six that's supersized, right? You can go to Sonic and get a regular number three, or you can get a supersonic number three, right? Uh, you can go to Wendy's and get a number one that's biggie-sized, and you can go to the glorious and godly Whataburger. You can get something regular, or you can get it Whata-sized, right? And so the option is there. The option is there. Do I want to just get what's, you know, kind of regular and mundane? Anybody can get this. Or do I want something that's more than the regular? And I think what Jesus is saying when he's talking about the fruit, he's saying, look, you've got a category of people. They're going to bear fruit, and that's amazing. Then you've got people who are going to bear more fruit, and that's amazing. But then you've got people who are going to bear much fruit, and it's not just much fruit. It's fruit that's going to last beyond themselves. I think Jesus is, is, you know, subversively, I think he's challenging us not to become content with simply bearing fruit. Now, the trouble is, is that in order to go from fruit to more fruit to much fruit, there's a process involved. And it's a process that Jesus speaks of that is not really comforting to the soul. He calls it the pruning process right? He refers to the father as the gardener. In, in most translations, it, it translates the vine dresser. He, he speaks of the Lord being a vine dresser. Now, in ancient times, um, especially in places like Israel, um, uh, grape vines and vines, different things like that, they were enormous for the economy and for the sustenance of the nation. You realize that even today, in Israel, uh, they have coinage that on the back of their coinage, you know, we'll have like a president or something like that. They have clusters of grapes. Their national symbol is, is a, um, it, it's a symbol, but around the symbol, it has a grapevine. Their, uh, their logo for the national um, uh, tourist industry of Israel, it, it shows a, it has a logo of the two men uh, who had gone as, as spies into the promised land, and then they came back to show all the fruit that they had on the pole. You remember that? The, the grape clusters were so enormous that they had to get a pole and they had to carry it on their shoulders. That is the logo of Israel. It was a huge thing. It's a huge thing for modern Israel, but for ancient Israel, it was even more of an economic impact for these people. And so they took in, in, incredible care of their, uh, of their wine presses, their fields, all these kind of things. Oftentimes what would happen is if you had an enormous vineyard of grapes, let's say, you would oftentimes hire these groups of vine dressers. And what you would do is you would take them through two or three different seasons, sometimes years, of taking them through the process of how to best care for the vine and for the branches so that they bear the most fruit. So these uh, vineyard owners, they would take the vine dressers and they would show them meticulously. They would say, listen, um, you can't just go in anytime you want and start cutting away, right? You've got to make sure that you do this at the right time. And when you go in at the right time, you can't just go monkey wild and start cutting things lest the vine will die and the branches and the fruit will have no harvest. And so when you go in, you've got to make sure that, that you're doing it just the right way. And you've got to make sure that not only are you cutting at the right angles, but you've got to make sure that you're not cutting too much away at a time. 
There is a process to all this that these, these men would be trained to do so that they could protect and preserve the branches and the harvest. And I want us to understand this, that God our Father is the master of vine dressers. And he never comes in at the wrong time to prune us. He never comes in and cuts too much away so that we are damaged instead of developed. He never comes in and cuts at the wrong angle or does it the wrong way. God is the perfect vine. Listen, God loves fruit, right? If God had a Yeti cup, he would have a sticker that says, I love fruit, right? Because he loves fruit. He loves the development of his people. He wants the betterment for us all and of us all. But sometimes it requires us to go through this really difficult process. But we are comforted in the fact that he is not only God, the vine dresser, but he is God, our father. And we can be comforted to know that God never comes in and prunes us for the sake of pruning us, right? It's kind of like this. We, we realize that God comes in to prune us of evil, right? There, there's no mistake that, you know, if I'm, if I'm just a mean person, if I'm, if I'm a Christian, if I'm in Christ, but I just got like this mean streak in me, the Lord is coming in to prune that. He's coming for it right? If I just, you know, if I'm like, if I got this issue with lying or gossip or whatever, the Lord is coming. We are constantly as believers. We are constantly in the process of sanctification. We are being cleansed for his purposes and for his glory, okay? Now, we have no problem with that. Sometimes we may have problem with it, but we understand it, right? We understand. We're like, you know, we're, we're a part of this kingdom. We don't need to have evil. We don't necessarily like it when God takes us stuff that we enjoy out, but let God do his work because that's evil and I don't want to be a part of evil. We understand it logically. The trouble with pruning is this, is the Lord says that God is not just coming to prune the evil out of our lives, but God oftentimes comes to prune the good out of our lives. It's a very bizarre are you saying that God's pruning? Why would God prune the good? He prunes the good so that we can get the better. And then oftentimes God comes in and he prunes the better so that we can have the best, right? So it's kind of like this. Let's say that, let's say that you are a part of a life group here at the church, which I think every Christian at Christian Life should be a part of a life group. Amen. 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 All right. Let's say that you decide that you're going to join a life group and you go to this life group and it is meeting every one of your relational needs. I mean, you are bearing fruit relationally and it is just so good for your soul, but you're kind of in the group and you're not necessarily growing spiritually because you're kind of at a higher level than most people in the group, maturity-wise, not higher level, you know what I'm, you understand what I'm saying. You're, you're, at a, you're at a deeper level, and so the things that they're talking about, you know, you are not so much there for the spiritual fruit as you are the relational fruit. But it's a good thing because you need relational fruit. The Lord steps in and he says, you know, I, I'm going to take you out of this group one way or another, however he decides to do it. I'm going to take you out of this group, and I'm going to put you in this other group. And so you start going into the other group and you realize that all of a sudden you're bearing spiritual fruit, like you're bearing spiritual fruit. But the struggle is, is that you're not bearing relational fruit. Now you were bearing relational fruit in this group and it was good, 
But the Lord saw it fit to come in and to say, I'm going to prune this good out of your life, and relational fruit is good, but I'm going to prune this, and I'm going to set you in something that is better because spiritual fruit is better than relational fruit. And so as we're enjoying this moment, but we're just not relationally getting fed, but we are growing leaps and bounds spiritually, the Lord comes in and he prunes us out of this group, and he plants us in this group. And all of a sudden, what we realize after a couple of times of being with this group is that not only are we bearing spiritual fruit the same way that we were in this group, but we're also bearing relational fruit like we were in this group. Now, listen to me. In the process, it doesn't make sense. We don't understand. It's it's quite frustrating, and it hurts. It hurts our feelings. We don't understand. Lord, why would you take me from something that is so good for my soul? And in step two, you go, oh, this is why you would take me from something that's so good for my soul. But then all of a sudden, he takes me from this group and puts me here. And you say, why would you take me from something that was better? And then you get the epiphany. Oh, because this is best. And then all of a sudden, you understand the pruning process. And not only the process, but the purpose behind the process that God not only wants fruit, but God wants better fruit. Right? It's not just quantity of fruit that God wants. He wants quality of fruit. This is why he says, you will bear fruit, fruit that will remain. Because it's not only about the quantity, it's also about the quality. And so God steps in and he begins to prune us. There are a couple of ways that, that he prunes, a, prunes us really, really quickly. Number one, what God often uses more than oftentimes any other thing is that God often prunes us through scripture. Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. Cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. When we go and, and we just kind of camp out and we begin to soak in the word of God, it does some things to us. Uh, God's word has a way of coming to us and, and comforting us in certain ways. Uh, God's word has a way of, of imparting courage to our souls. But God's word has a way of coming us and, and convicting our souls of certain things. He begins to cut things out of us. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, The word of God is inspired by God and it's useful to teach us what is good and true and to show us what is wrong in our lives. So Paul is saying, listen, the word of God is going to come and it is going to, it is going to shape you. And in some ways it's going to comfort you and give you courage. In other ways it's going to convict you and cleanse you. But the word of the Lord is going to do its work. God also uses the process of suffering to prune us. Now, Obviously, out of all the methods that God chooses to use, if I had the ability to say yes, yes, no, yes, no, suffering would be the one I'd be like, cast it out. Like, I don't want any part of suffering, right? Because it's not appealing to the average person. The reality is, though, is that God oftentimes uses suffering in order to shape us and to mold us into his image. Sometimes that suffering is physical suffering. I'm not saying that God imparts physical suffering, but that God allows physical suffering at times. 
that God allows emotional trauma at times, that God allows mental struggles, relational struggles, various, as, as James puts, various types of struggles God allows for us, but it's not just simply for the sake of allowance so that God can watch us suffer. It is ultimately for the purposes of pruning us so that God can get more fruit, not just more fruit, better fruit, right? And so when we, when we think about being pruned through suffering, I think we've got to remember that we need to just be cautious when, when suffering approaches our lives, that we need to be cautious to make sure that we are not calling something evil or an attack of the enemy that actually is something that God has allowed. We've got to be careful not to call something bad that God has called good to get fruit out of us. Does that make sense? So instead of, you know, jumping to the conclusion that Satan is attacking me and his dominions are attacking me, that very well may be true. But it also may be true, and it is true, that God has allowed them to attack you. And we've got to begin to ask the question, why has God allowed them to attack me? And I guarantee you almost every time, it's so that he can get more and better fruit out of all of us. This is what Joseph faces in his life, right? The man spends years and years, he's innocent by all counts, his integrity is through the roof, but he spends years and years in prison, and at the end of his life, he stands and looks at his brothers and he says this, he said, that which the enemy intended for evil, God has turned it for the good and for the salvation of many, right? And so we've got to make sure that our filter is appropriate when God purges us, when God begins to prune us. And I'm just going to say this, that when God begins to go through this process, it is absolutely, there is an enormous learning curve, right? Because in the beginning, there's a lack of understanding, there's frustration, there's all this stuff. But as we begin to mature in the Lord, as we begin to understand not just the ways of God, but the heart of God more, we begin to not despise pruning so much, but we begin to understand it in a way where we can receive it. Charles Spurgeon said it like this one time in, in, in the latter years of his life and in his great maturity. Listen to what Charles H. Spurgeon said. He said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave. I have learned to kiss the trouble as long as the trouble throws me against God. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. The trouble is, is that when we go through suffering, so many times we feel like we have been abandoned by the Lord. Am I right? We feel like we have been left alone, that nobody on earth quite understands. We know that God understands, but it almost feels like he's vacant and, and he's not here. But we're reminded in scripture as we camp out in his word that though he is pruning us, that he is with us even till the end of the age. I remember a, a few years ago, I was um, spending some time with um, a person that was just going through one of the worst trials of suffering I've, I've ever seen. And um, I remember leaving that person and I was just so overwhelmed with sympathy and hurt for them. Um, I, I couldn't understand what was going on. I was as frustrated as they were about why God would be allowing all this and all these kind of things. It was just a really, really sad, really terrible situation. And as my wife and I drove down the road, we left their house and we drove down the road 
I just simply whispered. I said, please be near, Lord. I said, please just be near, Lord. And in a split second, the spirit of the Lord spoke to me. And he said, Corey, I am more near than you could ever imagine. And in those moments of suffering, not only do we got to understand the purpose of it, we can get our heads around the purpose of it. God is doing this for my good and for his glory. But we got we to gotta remember that God has not abandoned us in these moments. That if we are indeed abiding in the vine, there's no separation between us except that which exists in our mind. The Lord is near us. And so God uses suffering to prune us. Number three, God uses uh, uh, his spirit to prune us. Uh, God oftentimes will use his spirit to convict us or to lead us into certain actions that are either laying things down or picking things up. It's, it's a process of pruning. Um, I remember uh, several years ago, my wife and I, I think I may have told this story before, but my wife and I, um, she got into a car accident one time and it, it totaled our car. Um, we still owed money on our car. I think we owed like two or $3,000, but we did not have uh, what they call gap insurance to, for the insurance com company to, to cover what we uh, still owed on the vehicle. So we had like a totaled vehicle and we still owed several thousand dollars to pay out the vehicle. Uh, we had a hand-me-down vehicle that was not, a, I mean, it was workable, but it was one vehicle and it was not, you know, conducive for a growing family or for little ones. And um, I remember one, one morning just being so frustrated with everything. We knew we had to get another vehicle, but we couldn't really afford another vehicle. We just, we just financially, it was just not a good spot. And um, I remember one morning, Joy was gone somewhere at work or on an errand or something like that. And I was watching television and um, a commercial came on. It was, it was a World Vision commercial. You guys remember World Vision? And uh, it's a missions organization that do good work around the world. And um, it, was, it was a commercial about them feeding people, children who were in other countries, different things like that. And I wasn't necessarily emotionally compelled in the moment, but I felt the Spirit of the Lord speak to me. And I felt like the Lord said that I needed to send $1,000 to this organization. Now, in our savings account for the first time ever, we had just cleared $1,000 in our savings account. I think we had like $1,100 in our, in our savings account. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? I think my mic is, <laughs> sir? Oh, you said, okay, I was just making sure, you know. And so I did something that no married person should ever do. I sent the $1,000 without consulting with my wife. And... Um, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to sneak around. I just wanted to be obedient. And uh, my wife understood after I explained it, but in the first few seconds, it was not pretty at all. Um, so just students, make sure you don't do that. Communicate with your spouses. So I sent the money, but I was just like, it, it hurt, but I, I, I really sensed that the spirit was, was calling me to do it. So I did it. And it wasn't just a, a few days later, at, no, at the most, I would say a couple of weeks later, that we had dinner with uh, some friends that were part of the church we were pastoring at, and um, we went to dinner together. And in that dinner, they gave us their vehicle that at the time was worth more than $8,000. It was a huge vehicle, it was, it was enormous. We could have never paid for that vehicle without taking out a loan. 
And the point of what I'm trying to say is this, is that sometimes the Spirit leads us to do things, and we may not think of it as pruning, but we're trying to walk in obedience, and I truly felt like the Lord was trying to say, look, I know this is good, and you have been fruitful financially, and you've done well financially to to save this money, but I, I need you to take this good, and I need you to give it away. And in this moment, as I took what was good and I gave it away, God brought something better than what I could have ever imagined. And I'll tell you right now, I do not believe that I would, I know this sounds, I am not a prosperity preacher type, I am not, if you know me, you know that drives me up a wall, I despise it. But I am telling you this, I do believe in the principle of sowing and reaping. And I do believe that if I would not have been obedient to that pruning in that moment, that I would not have received better fruit that what my family receives. So sometimes the spirit of the Lord just comes and directs us in certain ways. And it's a part of the pruning process. And then finally, number four, God oftentimes prunes us through spiritual relationships. Uh, Proverbs 27 says that just as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another man. And so we need to be reminded that oftentimes God will use people in our lives to sharpen us and to, he will use them as instruments of pruning in order to help us to bear more fruit. Um, I think that sometimes we have to be people that give permission to other people to speak freely into our lives. Now, I don't think you should just, you know, be walking in church Sunday and be just like, you! Speak freely into my life. Whatever you want to say, call me. I'll do whatever you want to do. Okay? That is going to end really badly. For everybody involved, it's just not going to go well. Okay? But I am saying this, that we all should have um, godly counsel, godly friendships, people who we have. I have people in my life that I have literally gone to and said, listen, I give you permission to ask me any question you want at any time you want. I give you permission, if you ever see me speak to my wife in a way that's unbecoming of a Christian man, I give you permission to call me out on that in the moment. And through that friendship, God is pruning me so that not just will I bear good fruit, but I'll bear better fruit and much fruit in times to come. So God oftentimes uses those things, okay? Now, very quickly, because the clock is broken and I don't have my phone, I don't know what time, I don't want us to be 11 o'clock getting out of here, and I'll do it. Um, Let's talk really quickly about fruit and what fruit looks like, okay? Jesus here in John 15, he mentions a couple of things. He says, says, listen, when you abide in the vine, here here is some fruit that you will see in your life. And he mentions a couple of things. The first thing Jesus mentions is this. He says, the first thing that the first type of fruit that you will receive is pruning. We look at that and we say, that ain't a fruit, right? But listen to me say this. As we mature and grow, we begin to see pruning in a very different light. At first, we look at it and we don't understand it. We frustrate, it frustrates us and we say, I don't want pruning. Lord, you did your work, now Go. But as we mature and we begin to see pruning come our way, 
just like Charles Spurgeon, we begin to embrace it a little bit more and to view it as fruit, not as an obstacle. So Jesus says that we will receive pruning as a fruit. We will receive love as fruit. We will bear joy as a fruit. And Jesus finishes off with, with something very, very peculiar when he talks about answered prayer as a fruit. Now, this is one of the most abused scriptures in all of the Bible that Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, my father, it will be granted to you by my father who is in heaven. This is one of the most abused scriptures in all because people take it completely out of context and they run off with it. What Jesus is basically saying here, he's saying this, if you are connected to the vine, if you are truly at the deepest level abiding in me, when you pray, you're not going to pray amiss. You're going to pray the will of the Father. And when you pray the will of the Father, it will come to pass. We have taken that and just decimated it in, in the Christian community. And I just want us to understand that is not what Jesus is saying, that if you want a Lambo, you can pray for a Lambo according to the Father. He's going to bring it to you. That is not what he is saying. So Jesus gives us a few evidences of, of the fruitful life. But then I, I was reading a, a commentary by a guy named Elmer Towns, and he goes through and he just, he, he takes apart the, old, or the New Testament, and he talks about the different types of fruit that are spoken of in the New Testament. And I'll just run through this list really, really quickly. He talks about um, the fruit of character. He talks about the fruit of our conduct and how we live our lives, the fruit of contentment, uh, the fruit of conversation, the fruit of our lips. He says, listen, when you are abiding in Christ, the fruit of your lips will truly be tasteful to other people and not repulsive. Uh, the, the concrete service of God, there, there is a fruit of converts that that you will win souls, that, that you will reach people who are lost. There is a fruit of the womb, which is, is spiritual children or, or children. There is fruit that you will receive when you abide in the vine. But what I want to do is I want to take it just really quickly onto a very, very personal level for just one moment. What I think Jesus may be alluding to prophetically because the scripture, the text hadn't been written yet, but I think what Jesus was alluding to on a very intimate, personal level was the text in Galatians 5 that we call the fruit of the Spirit. Paul wrote this. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, I don't know any Christian except for you. I don't know any other Christian that looks at a list like this every day of their life. They go through the list and they say, nailing it, nailing it, nailing it, nailing it, nailing it, right? There's nobody, like when Paul is writing this, he's not saying this is the fruit of the spirit for you to attain. And once you attain it, you possess it and there's no going back. It's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that these are measurements that when we, that when we are, are bearing fruit, we need to measure it against these things to make sure that we are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, right? So Paul would basically say this, if you don't have peace, then you're not bearing fruit. And if you're not bearing fruit, it means you're not abiding in Christ. If you don't have love, joy, that means you're not bearing fruit, but the reason you're not bearing that fruit is because you're not abiding in Christ. 
He's not saying, listen, and, and I, I don't think Paul is saying that there's this capacity of love that can be filled, and once you fill it, you can't grow in love anymore. Now, I think that we can grow our capacity to love. I think that I can love better tomorrow than I did today, but my point is, is that I will never attain this level of love where I am constantly and continue, continually loving people because I live in a broken world and a broken system and a broken body right? And so Paul is saying this. Um, it, it's like, um, I remember one time I was reading um, one of the most godly authors I've ever uh, read. His name is Dallas Willard. And he basically said this. He said, I measure my spiritual maturity. Like, like basically, I measure where I'm at spiritually by how easily I am irritated by the people around me. I mean, this is at the, the end of his life. I mean, the man had walked with Jesus all the days of his life, and he gets to the end of his life, and he says, you know how I measure myself, whether I'm doing well or not spiritually? How easily people get on my nerves. And, and, and what, what Dallas is saying here, and what Paul is saying here is simply this. He's saying, listen, when you realize that you're not walking with patience, it's a moment to check yourself and to ask yourself, am I abiding in Christ? If I'm, if I'm not walking in the joy of the Lord, if I'm not walking with otherness, if I'm not walking in a place of, of kindness and gentleness, it's a reminder to me that I'm probably not abiding in Jesus. And so these aren't things to be attained. They are measurements that we can uh, measure our own walk with. Okay, so, so these are the types of spiritual gifts that the Lord is speaking of. And so the reality is this, is that the fruit that we see all throughout Scripture that Jesus says we should bear this type of fruit, Jesus makes an emphatic declarative statement when he says this. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, it may seem like you have joy. That ain't real joy. Apart from me, it's not real joy. Right? He, he, he may say, you may feel like you have self-control, but apart from me, that's not self-control. But when you abide in me, you can understand what true self-control is. And so we get this idea that Jesus talks. He says, listen, you've got to abide in me. You've got to rest in me. In 11 verses, Jesus uses the word abide 11 times. He says, you must come and abide with me. This word abide, it is the same, the Greek word kind of translate, it can, it can do a couple of different, it can manifest itself in a couple of different translations. But, but one, of the, one of the things that it translates into is the phrase just like spending time together, just hanging out. One of the words used to help us understand the Greek is the word loitering, right? Have you ever been to a, a store, a grocery store, and they have giant signs, no loitering? Do you know what that means? It means don't just like hang out on our sidewalk. Go, walk away. Jesus is saying this. He's saying, if you want to bear the spiritual fruit, loiter. Come, right? And like, like, I believe in systematic prayer. I believe in all that. I think that we've got to make headway and, and systematically pray. But in this portion of Scripture, that is not what Jesus is talking about. He's just saying this. Listen to me. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Come boldly to sit at the feet of the teacher. Come 
and just spend time. Bill Johnson said that, that, that spiritual relationships are, are not necessarily just hanging out. They're an exchange of life one to another. Jesus is saying, listen, come. Let's exchange life, right? Let's, let's do this together so that you can abide and, and, and bear fruit. I am... Um, Years ago, I, I don't drink coffee very much. I stopped drinking a lot of coffee years ago. And uh, I love coffee. I just, for whatever reason, I stopped drinking. And so I drink, in the mornings, I drink tea. And I get made fun of by all my male friends for whatever reason, because they're the same ones that love to drink sweet tea for lunch. So I don't understand. Hypocrites. Um, when you drink tea in the morning, you have to get boiling hot water in your cup. And then you get your tea bag and you got some people that they dip their tea bag. Here, I've done that. Have you ever dipped a tea bag? And you got to kind of like, you know, just drop it in. And all of a sudden you hear it fizz and, you know, your water starts turning and everything. And dip in and dip out and you do that for a few minutes. And then after a while of dipping, you take a spoon, right? And you take the tea bag and you, you, you spin it around, then you squeeze all the goodness out of the tea bag into your, into your thing. And you know what I realized? You know what I realized? That if I literally will just take my tea bag and drop it in, it will do the same thing. There's like no work required, right? It'll just, all of a sudden there's like this chemical reaction Right? And it's just all of a sudden, and listen, you want to tell you why? Because the hot, the, the, the tea bag was made for hot water. Yeah. It was made for hot, it was made to go in hot water. Yeah. And when the tea bag rests in the hot water, yeah. the hot water goes through the tea bag, the tea bag exchanges its flavor, yeah. and all of a sudden in the cup, what do you see? Transformation. Because your hot water is no longer just hot water. Your hot water is something different. And I think if we're not careful, and I'm so guilty of this, I think that I can work so hard at kind of dipping into my relationship with the Lord and dipping out. Kind of dipping in for a moment, and then my schedule, I got to go do. Jesus is saying, look, you got to make time just to drop in. You got to make time just to drop and to sit, to soak, to, to exchange life, to let the transformation happen. Let me go through you and you go through me. You abide in me and I abide in you. You got to make time for this so that there can be a legitimate transformation. In the midst of that transformation, guess what's born? Fruit. You know it to be true. Because there have been times, so many times in your life when you have taken the moments to sit and to soak. All of a sudden, once you leave the presence of the Lord after soaking for a little while, all of a sudden you're just a little more understanding with your boss. You're a little more, your tone's a little kinder with your wife and your kids. All of a sudden these things that, you know, why am I not as irritated? I don't know what's going on. You're bearing fruit. Because you just haven't dipped into the vine, but you've abided in the vine. And the life of God is flowing through us. And that's what Jesus is after. It's purely relational. 
It's a moment of, of union, being tied into the vine, but it's not just union, it's communion. It's a moment where we don't just sit at the table with Jesus, but we sit at the table with Jesus and we partake of Jesus. And he partakes of us and we leave all the better for it. And that is what Jesus is after. Amen? It is such a privilege to be a branch in the vine. To be one with our Lord. But the oneness comes with a responsibility to bear fruit. But the amazing thing is, is that when we are truly abiding, we don't have to work for that fruit. It is a natural offshoot of just abiding in that vine. And Father, tonight, I thank you for the words of our Lord Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that not only do you want us to bear fruit, Lord, but you just want to be with us. The brokenness of your created order, and you, you just want to be with us. And tonight, I'm so thankful for that. I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters that are here tonight, that you will teach us again to abide in your presence, that you will help us to embrace the pruning that you desire so that we can bear the fruit of God for our good and for your glory. I thank you for your goodness. I pray your blessing over my brothers and sisters tonight, and we bless them in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen.